I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We'll probably start around chapter 3 or 4. I, um, uh, I want to start a new series this morning entitled, Jesus Our High Priest. But to get the most from what we're saying, you really should hear what was said for the last 32 weeks. Um, I, I'm kind of kidding about that, but, uh, but right on the other hand, uh, to be real honest with you, um, January of 2012 marks our uh, 26th anniversary of, uh, of Foothill Family Church. And um, in, in, from my point of view, 26 years ago, I started a series and I have never quit. That's really the way I look at it. This is, this is in, in, in reality a, a, a sub-series within the last series that we were teaching on spiritual maturity. But we'll try to do it in such a way that it stands alone. The, the people around here in the, in the audio department and stuff, they really get upset with me when I have these 64-week series. You know, who's going to buy a 64-week series? Come get the new series by Pastor Mike. It's only $1,022. You know, that, that's, that's kind of hard to do. But anyway, I want to talk to you this morning on some things regarding Jesus, our high priest. You know, this being Christmas time, everybody focuses on, uh, well, at least the people that, that uh, still relate Christianity to Christmas and, and um, uh, still associate it that way. The focus is on Jesus in the manger. You know, in certain situations, Christmas cards and stuff, not too much in public square anymore, but you'll see certain manger scenes and, and different things like that. It's always about Jesus in the manger, and that's right. That's good. That's right. I'm not, I'm not criticizing anything. I don't have anything bad to say about that. But at other times of the year, instead of focusing on Jesus on the manger, people focus on Jesus on the cross. The church, by and large, is what I'm talking about. And, and that's good. I mean, we need to know Jesus came and was born in the manger and, and came to the earth in the way that he did, the virgin birth and so forth. It's good that we know what Jesus did for us on the cross, but that's not all we need to know. One of the things that the Bible tells us about growing up spiritually and about walking in the blessings of God is that we not only need to know how Jesus came, we not only need to know what Jesus did on the cross, but we need to know what Jesus is doing for us now, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And it's the lack of knowledge of some of the things about what belongs to us and what Jesus is doing for us now that, in my opinion, you judge it for yourself, but in my opinion, keeps a lot of people from walking in the victory that Jesus purchased for us on the cross, which was the whole reason why he came to the earth to be born in a manger and so forth. So I want to talk to you a little bit about this. The, uh, the Bible, the New Testament, really the only book that gives us much information at all about Jesus being our high priest is the book of Hebrews. Now, there's a reason for that. The reason for that is the Gentiles did not understand the, the meanings of the Old Testament rituals and the, 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 uh, the Levites being the priests and the law of Moses and things like that. It wouldn't do any good for Paul to go into these Gentile cities and try to tell them about Abraham and Moses and the law and, and Jesus then came. And, uh, what's the point? Paul just went and told people about Jesus coming to dying to, to die for and to pay the price for their sins and what belongs to him as a result of that. Well, that makes sense. I mean, why give Gentiles a history lesson about the Jews? But to the Jews, the Bible speaks specifically. To the Jewish Christians, it speaks specifically. I think not only for their benefit in the time that the books were written, but also for our benefit because God knew that we would have the collection of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We would be able to see from the teaching, primarily in the book of Hebrews, how the New Testament fulfills the Old. What was the meaning of the Old Testament rituals and sacrifices and the, the operation of the priesthood and that kind of stuff? What was that all for? And how did Jesus 
bring about that, uh, that fulfillment. Now, there's disagreement in the body of Christ and theological circles and, uh, and so forth about who, who wrote the book of Hebrews. Well, we know it's not Peter. Peter didn't know enough about the, the, the ritual sacrifice and so forth. He, he couldn't have known these things. It would have had to have been by revelation. And if it was by revelation, he would, have, he would have identified that he was the writer of the book. He was the apostle to the Jews. Everybody understood that Peter was the apostle to the Jews. But you remember that after Jesus was raised from the dead and Peter and John and the disciples began to do miracles, they were brought before the council. And the outstanding characteristic that the council found about Peter and John was that they were ignorant and unlearned men. Now, that brings me great comfort. <laughs> if God could use ignorant and unlearned men then, I'm in good shape. If that were not the case, then I'd have to find a new line of work. But my point is, when they said that they were ignorant and unlearned men, it didn't mean they didn't know anything. They certainly knew about, more about Jesus and about what Jesus had accomplished than they did. They, the Jewish council. What they were ignorant and unlearned about was the Old Testament rituals and the sacrifices and the training that the rabbis and the priests received. Well, the book of Hebrews is all about the training that the priests received. Well, okay, if Peter didn't do it, then who did it? Some say that Timothy did it. Well, Timothy was a Gentile. How's he going to know about the, the priesthood? How's he going to know the stuff about the Old Testament? If he knew it at all, he, it was because of what he learned from Paul. So it doesn't make sense to me that Timothy would be the one writing it. Well, who is the one that we have record of throughout the New Testament that was trained as a rabbi, trained, had the same training that the high priest had, and who had a revelation of Jesus, not only what he did, but who he is now and what he's doing for us now. Who is that other than Paul? See, there's, there's no question for me. The book of Hebrews shows how everything fits together. The book of Hebrews proves to me more, as much or more than anything else, why God chose Paul. Because Paul could not only preach to the, to the, 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 uh, the Gentiles in their language according to the revelation he received, but also Paul had knowledge of the Old Testament training and the rabbis' teaching and the learning and, and all the other kind of stuff that they had to go through. And, and by the way, the Old Testament rabbis, the same training that Paul received, that the priesthood received, the Old Testament rab, uh, the, um, the priests, rather, is what I'm trying to say, the priests had to be able to quote the law and the prophets. What we know of is the Old Testament. That's the kind of intellect that the priests had, why they would consider Peter to be an ignorant and unlearned person. Here Peter is trying to explain to them about Jesus and God fulfilling things, and they know he doesn't know as much about the Old Testament, the Law, and the Prophets that they do. But Paul's a different story. They had more trouble with Paul than they had anybody else because everybody else they could just put down as being ignorant. Well, these are just foolish people. Don't pay any attention to them. You couldn't say that about Paul. That's why the Jews were trying to kill Paul. Because when Paul stood up and said, well, here's how it used to be and here's how it is now and here's why. They had nothing they could say. Absolutely nothing they could say. Not only that, but Paul had been the one that was the persecutor. He had been on the side of the priests and the council. He had been the one that was persecuting and trying to kill Christians and stop the gospel from going forward. And then Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus. Turns his life around. Now all of a sudden Paul is the greatest proponent of the gospel. How are the Jews going to answer that? What's the council going to say for that? Well, for that reason, I believe with all of my heart, you, it doesn't matter if we disagree or not. I mean, if you want to be wrong, that's okay. I, I'm, I, no hard feelings about it. <laughs> but as far as I'm concerned, Paul's got to be the writer of the book of Hebrews. If he's not, then God had to pull somebody else out of the hat that we never know about 
that they never have any record of, that we wouldn't have an opportunity to examine their life. The Bible says examine the fruit of a person's life, not just listen to what they have to say. So if God's pulling somebody out of the hat, an unknown to be the writer of the book of Hebrews, how are we going to operate according to what he said to do in the Word? For me, it's got to be Paul. Therefore, I'm going to, in some, many of the things that I'm going to say, I will slip up and say Paul said. Okay? I don't have absolute proof that Paul is the writer of the book of Hebrews. I believe it to be true. But whoever it was, the Holy Ghost inspired him. But for me, it carries more weight if it was Paul because Paul, I know Paul's experience, I know Paul's life because of the instruction and the, the, the record that we have in the Bible. Okay? Notice some things that Paul says by the Holy Ghost about Jesus. Let's start reading in verse, chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5, in verse 1. He says, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now please notice the wording that Paul uses. He says, talking about earthly priests, he's going to make the comparison between the earthly priesthood and Jesus being our high priest. And he says to us that men, earthly priests, are ordained of men in things pertaining to God. Notice they're not things pertaining to men. A high priest doesn't work toward man. A high priest works toward God on behalf of man. Now that's important. That's going to be significant. Now why is that significant? He goes on to say... Every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices of sin. Let me stop there and mention the ordaining process. You remember in the Old Testament when God said to Moses, pick, you know, Moses sees God, hears God in the burning bush and God says, I need you to go to Pharaoh and say this. And Moses comes up with all kinds of excuses. Finally, his last excuse is, I can't talk. Most church, uh, uh, well, the... Uh, the religious idea is that Moses was a stutterer. The Bible really doesn't say that, but most, uh, most people think that Moses was a stutterer. And so Moses finally says, well, I can't talk. Finally, God, almost mad, says, I'll be your voice. Take Aaron. Now, I don't know if that was God's original plan or if, or if he was just frustrated with Moses and said, all right, take Aaron with you. Aaron was not always a blessing. Aaron's the one that made the golden calf when Moses was up on Mount Sinai. So whatever the intent was, however it turned out, I don't know. I don't have all the answers on that. But he finally says, okay, go take Aaron. Aaron is the one that's ordained to be the high priest. And the ordination process for Aaron, as well as anybody else that would take the office of the high priest, is that they would be separated through certain ritual uh, cleansing procedures, and, and then they would pour oil on their head. It would be a public ceremony so that everybody would recognize this is the person, the one individual. This is the individual that is separated before God in things pertaining to God. In other words, he's going to work toward God for us. Okay? That's what he's talking about. He said that's something that when uh, earthly priests are ordained, that's something that men do. Verse 2, he goes, that he says, who can have compassion? Still talking about the high priest. He said he's taken from among men, in other words, and ordained by men, so that he can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way. For that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. In other words, we might say it this way, he can relate to the people he's working on behalf of. Because he's sinful, 
because he's subject to sin, because he's missed it, because he has the same frailties and imperfections as the people he's offering gifts and sacrifices for, he can relate to them. Okay? Now, folks, I want you to understand, Paul makes certain points about the high priest. Why? Because he's trying to get across to you and me as believers, as Christians, as followers of Jesus. He's trying to get across to us that in the same way the earthly priests were able to relate to you in your sin, you mean the Old Testament saints, the Jews, in the same way they were able to relate, Jesus is going to be able to relate to you. Now that's where our mind kind of goes tilt. Because Jesus was without sin. How could he relate to me? How in the world could he relate to me? Paul is making the point. It's something that he's convinced of. It's something that's been revealed to him. It's something that he's trying to show you. And folks, I want you to understand something. If you don't get this, if you don't let this sink in, you will never take advantage of all the things that God has for you because you will never feel like you're worthy. Which, in my opinion, is one of the greatest hindrances and problems with the church world today. The Bible says we've been made righteous. But the church world believes they're worthy. Well, which way is it? Can't be both. You are, you're either righteous or you're unworthy. Can't be both. Paul is trying to make the point that Jesus can relate to you. Show you how. It goes further in verse 3. It says, And by reason hereof he ought, still talking about the earthly priest, as for the people, so he for himself to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor upon himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said to him. In other words, the one that made Jesus a high priest is the one that said to him, and God's the one that said this to him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Now, without taking a lot of time, in Acts chapter 13, Paul is standing there talking. Paul and Silas are standing there preaching to the people. And in preaching to the people, Paul refers back to this verse of Scripture. I think it's Psalm, uh, Psalm 2 verse 7, I believe it is. He revers, uh, refers back to Psalm 2 7. This day is my son begotten. This day thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Now, folks, I want you to understand, especially around Christmas time, this is not talking about Jesus being born in a manger. Jesus was not begotten into a manger. Why? Because he existed before. Jesus was born into the earth to become the legitimate savior of mankind. But he was not begotten on Christmas Day. This is not talking about Jesus being born into the earth. What is it talking about? Paul said it's talking about when God raised him from the dead. That's when God declared, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. He says so in Acts chapter 13. He refers back to it here in Hebrews. Here's another proof for me that it's got to be Paul. Peter never said anything about this stuff. Paul understood it. Paul understood, in my opinion, Paul understood more about Jesus being raised from the dead and what Jesus suffered than any of the rest of them did. I think that's one of the reasons that Peter writes in his letter to the church, our brother Paul writes of things that are hard to understand. <laughs> Why? Because Peter is the ignorant and unlearned man. Again, that's not a slam on him. Peter probably knew more than I know. So it's not a slam on him, but he didn't have the training. He didn't have the instruction. He didn't have the lifestyle of learning that Paul did. Paul understood this. When Jesus reached Paul on the road to Damascus and unveiled 
the, the brought it, took him up into the third heaven and showed him things, how things work and what belongs to us and what Jesus really did. It's like everything fell down like dominoes for Paul. It's like the Old Testament, it came alive. It's like, oh, you mean this meant that and, and this? Oh, I can see how that fits. Everything fits in together like a puzzle. No wonder God reached Paul. Peter's not going to be able to give this to us. The Lord needed somebody that understood the Old Testament like Paul did. Why? Even though he wasn't sent to the Jews, he could speak to the Jews. I believe that's the very reason that Paul didn't sign the letter. If there was, if there was a, a misunderstanding, if there was a lack of, uh, of knowledge about who wrote the letter, but it's truth, there's a lot of Jews that would have accepted it, that if they found out Paul was the one that wrote it, might not have. There's a lot of things that I'm able to tell people that Brother Hagin said, but if I tell them it was Brother Hagin that said it, they're out the door. Why? Because of what they've heard about Brother Hagin. And what they've heard about Brother Hagin's a lie. But their idea, their concept, had somebody come not too long ago and say, Pastor Mike, I heard you talking about Kenneth Hagin. I Googled him this week. Well, I'm sure that was a real blessing. Yeah, there's 42 websites that say he's the leader of a cult. Okay. They said that about Jesus too. So Paul is saying, Paul is identifying that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God and begotten of God when he was raised from the dead. That's why the Bible says, and Paul's the one that says it, that Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. Folks, I want you to understand something. Jesus was born again just like you were born again. That's tough for some folks. How could the Son of God be born again? Well, that takes you into a little bit more controversy. In order for Jesus to be born again, that means he had to spiritually die. Some folks don't want to accept that. I understand. It was a time I didn't either. I get that. But if the Bible is true that Jesus was the first begotten of the dead, or the firstborn from the dead, or firstborn among many brethren, the Bible says, if he was the firstborn among many brethren, that means he had to be born out of death. Because that's what you were. You were born out of death. You were born out of death and into life. Out of spiritual death and into eternal life. So was Jesus. When did that happen? When God raised him from the dead. This day have I begotten thee. And then notice what also it says God ordained him to. In other words, it's saying God ordained Jesus to be a priest for two reasons. Number one, he said, I've begotten thee. In other words, you have been born again from the dead. Number two... As he also said in another place, verse 6, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. How was Jesus made a priest? He was not of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah. In other words, Paul goes into great detail about this. Clearly Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, and there's nothing in the Old Testament law, the, the carnal commandment as he refers to it, there's nothing in the law of Moses that says that a, 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 a member of the tribe of Judah can be the high priest, or a priest, or any part of the priesthood. That's reserved for the Levites. So how could Jesus be made a priest? Very simply, because God said, I've, born you, I've, I've caused you to be born from the dead, and I made you a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, since Melchizedek's name has been invoked here, we're going to have to know a little something about him.
Turn back with me to, uh, to well, I'm going to turn back to Genesis chapter 14. You don't have to if you don't want to. I'll, I'll read the scriptures to you, but if you'd like, it's in Genesis chapter 14. To bring you a little bit up to date, uh, before we start reading some scriptures, the Bible tells us about how Abraham's um, nephew, Lot, was taken captive by, uh, he had gone to live in the, the land of uh, Sodom, the city of Sodom. And uh, the city had been attacked by five other kings, a, a group of five other kings, and had taken all the people and all the goods and all the stuff from the city and carried them off. Abraham hears about it and gets a, puts together an army out of his own servants. The Bible says that it was 300 and some odd servants, if I remember correctly, that he made an army out of. And he went and defeated all those five kings' armies and got back all the people and all the stuff and so forth. Now he's coming back from this great victory. And it says... Verse 18, Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. Where did he come from? Where does he come from? We don't know. He's king of Salem. What does that mean? Does that mean that there's a city of Salem? Well, there was. Does that mean he is the king of that city? Maybe. But how did he become the priest of God? law of Moses has not been given yet. There is no such thing as the tribe of Levi. Levi is at this point in Abraham's loins, the Bible says. Levi is a future descendant of Abraham. So there is no tribe or, 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 or people of the high priest. Moses hadn't been born yet. Aaron hadn't been born yet. There's no such thing as a high priest. Abraham is the only person on the face of the earth that has a covenant with God. The only one. He doesn't have any children yet. Lot and some of those in Abraham's household have the benefit of Abraham's covenant. They're walking in the blessings of Abraham's covenant. But Abraham's the one that's got the covenant. He doesn't have any children and the covenant was to Abraham and his seed. There is no possibility for any other people to be a, a priest of, of God. Any other person or to come from any other tribe to be a priest of God. None. Who is this guy? We don't know. Abraham does. Now, we don't know if Abraham's acquainted with him. We don't know if they've met before. It doesn't say they shake hands and say, good to see you. We don't have any record like that. But we do know that Abraham recognizes that he is a priest of things pertaining to God. What does that mean to Abraham? It means to Abraham that Melchizedek is greater than he is. So what does he do? Melchizedek, verse 19, blesses him. Melchizedek blesses Abraham and says, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered thine, hand, thine enemies into thine hand. And Abraham paid, gave, tithe, gave him tithes of all. In other words, he gave him 10% of everything that he had gained back. Now, folks, you've got to remember, in Old Testament times, if you defeated somebody, all their stuff was yours. So now all these five kings worth of stuff plus all the stuff that they took from Sodom and whatever other cities they conquered. Now all that's Abraham's. It belongs to him. Legally, it belongs to him. And so what does Abraham do? Abraham sets apart. He cuts out 10% of all the stuff and he gives it to Melchizedek. What does Melchizedek do with it? I don't know. Does he take it home? I don't know. Where's home? What do we know about this guy? Now Paul's going to tell us some more about him in Hebrews. But that's all we know. 
Now the, the king of Sodom comes up and he starts trying to make a deal with Abraham. He says, tell you what, you keep the stuff. It's all legally yours because you defeated these kings that defeated us. You keep all the stuff, but give me all the people. And, and Abraham says, no, I'm not keeping anything. Here's Abraham's attitude. Folks, I want you to understand the attitude that the Bible associates with paying tithes. Now let me ask you a question. Before we go further, let me ask you a question. Where did the concept of paying tithes come from? What's well, in the law of Moses? There is no such thing yet. Where did the concept of paying tithes come from? You'll have some people nowadays say, well, that's an Old Testament ritual. Really? Well, then where did it come from? Show me where it originates. This is the first time we see it in action, but why? Show me the verse. Did, did the Holy Ghost just leave out the verse? Did God just not tell Moses about this part to write it down? And the Holy Spirit appeared to, to Abraham and said, Thou shalt give tithes. Well, you can add to the Bible if you want to. I mean, people do all the time. But does the Bible say that? Does it say God initiated it? Does it say Abraham was met by Melchizedek and Melchizedek said, Let me tell you who I am. I am the priest of the Most High God and you better give me 10%. I've got a special fundraising program going on right now. Where did it come from? Folks, I want you to understand this. Because if you don't understand this, you won't understand the attitude that Adam had toward his stuff. And I believe that that's hugely important to receiving material things from God today. Abraham is the one that decided he would give something to Melchizedek. We have no record whatsoever, none, that Abraham has ever even heard of a high priest. If he has ever heard of a high priest, it's been in idol worship, worshiping some false god. Because God's never had a high priest before. There's never been any... Abraham can't go back and say, Oh, high priest, oh yeah, I remember back over in Jericho. I remember there was a temple set up over there. There was no such thing. There was no temple. There was no high priest. There was nothing related to this. Abraham initiates the tithe on his own. He recognizes that this man is a representative of God. How did he know that? I don't know. Maybe he's seen the Lord enough times in the things that God has spoken to him to where he recognizes, hey, there's a connection here. I don't know. Couldn't tell you. But what I can tell you is, Abraham came up with tithes on his own. Abraham is the one that initiates it, not God. If you're looking at paying tithes as being something God requires of you, you are missing the point. We are to follow the, 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 in the steps of faithful Abraham. How? Abraham initiated paying tithes because of his appreciation for what God had done for him and the fact that God was with him and helped him in this particular situation, if nothing else. Why should we pay tithes? Because we recognize God is with us and He's helped us. If you're trying to fulfill some rule or some law or something that you think the Bible commands you to do, you are missing the point where it comes to paying tithes. If it's not something from your heart, you're wasting your time. I could show you people that have been paying tithes for years. And they will say, I won't, I, why didn't this work for me? Well, it worked for two reasons. Number one, because they're not doing it because they want to. They're doing it because they believe it's some kind of rule they have to follow. And number two, it's not working for them because they say it's not working for them. Folks, if tithing was an automatic thing, banks would be bringing churches money. 
I mean that seriously. If the windows of heaven being opened to people that pay their tithes was an automatic thing, if material blessing came as an automatic result from paying tithes, if the hundredfold return that so many people talk about was an absolute guarantee as a result of paying tithes and giving offerings, banks would give churches money. Why? Because they'd be looking for the return. It'd be better than Vegas. You see the point I'm trying to make? Abraham initiated it. Abraham gave him tithes of all. Now the king of Sodom comes up and says, well, let's make a deal. And Abraham says, here's the attitude of the guy that initiates paying tithes to God out of appreciation for what he's done. Abraham says, uh, verse 22, Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from, from a thread even to a shoe latchet, that means a shoelace, shoestring, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. Only thing I'm getting out of this is what the men have eaten on the way home. Now folks, let me tell you something. Folks that are following in the faith of Abraham, where tithes are concerned, are doing it out of a heart of appreciation for what God has done for them, number one. And number two, they're not trying to, to look to any means to cut a corner to make something off somebody else. They're looking to God and God alone. Because they want the end result of God's blessing to be nobody had anything to do with this except God. Back to Hebrews. So we left off in chapter 5, verse 6. As God also said in another place to Jesus, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see that? Now, turn back with me to chapter 2. Let's read a couple of verses in chapter 2. Because this all started with, with Paul talking about, Here's how men make other men high priests. And here's why. Here's why you choose a man to be a high priest so that he can relate to you. He's got the same issues and so forth that you do. We won't uh, take time to read a lot of scripture here, but in chapter 2 of Hebrews, he says of Jesus beginning in verse 16, he said, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. Now this is talking about when Jesus came into the earth. The Christmas story. He took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him. Now, he explains this a little bit further in verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also took likewise part, he also himself likewise took part of the same. So that's what it's talking about, taking on the seed of Abraham. It's talking about he came as flesh and blood. I want you to understand something, folks. He didn't have to. Jesus did not have to come flesh and blood. But he did, and Paul is telling us he did for certain reasons. And he's going to identify what those reasons are. He said, He took upon him not the nature of angels, but the seed of Abraham, flesh and blood in other words. Wherefore in all things, verse 17, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Why did Jesus come to the earth in flesh and blood? So that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. I'll let that sink in for a minute. What does Paul tell us in chapter 5 about high priests in the days of the Old Covenant? 
He's saying they were chosen from among men so that men would be able to relate. The men that, do, that offer to God things, sacrifices and gifts and so forth, things pertaining to God, so that they would be able to relate to the sins of others. Why? Because they're sinners themselves. So the Bible says that Jesus took upon himself flesh and blood so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. In other words, so that he could relate to you. Jesus came to the earth in flesh and blood so that he could relate to you. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, Jesus was without sin. <laughs> that doesn't relate to me. I spend my time talking to God about how I fail, where I miss it, where I fall short. How does that relate to me? He's going to tell us. He's going to show us. Jesus was made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Please notice that it's not things pertaining to men. Folks, there are things that the Bible says Jesus does for you. But when it comes to the high priest position that he has after the order of Melchizedek, it says Jesus offers things pertaining to God. Please keep that in mind. Jesus is in a position now at the right hand of the Father where he is the go-between for you to get to God. Now in everything, can't you go to God on your own? Well, yeah, in his name, sure. Yeah, but don't we, have, don't we have the life of God on the inside of us just like Jesus had the life of God on the inside of him? He said so. He prayed that we would be one with the Father just like he was one with the Father. Then why do we need Jesus? Because you need a merciful and faithful high priest. Paul goes on to say that the reason that God had to, had to set up another priesthood was not because the law had a flaw. The law did not. Man did. He tells not only the Hebrews, but also to the Romans. Paul says the law was perfect. There's nothing wrong with the law. Jesus didn't come to fulfill the law because there was a problem with the law. The problem was with man. There was a law that man could not keep. So what did Jesus do? He filled the gap between man's imperfection and the perfection of the law by fulfilling it once and for all. So he was made a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make reconciliation. Here's how he filled the gap. Here's what he did for us. To make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Now the word succor means aid or relieve. In other words, here's how Jesus relates to you. Jesus was tempted in every point just like as you are. Now he didn't sin. But the Bible indicates... That the difficulty is in the temptation, not in the result. The difficulty is in the temptation. The Bible is telling us Jesus is able to relate to us just as much in being tempted without sin as the stuff that you were tempted in and sinned. Why? That means there's only one common denominator and that's the temptation. The fact that he was tempted in all points is like as you are. He understands. Now, how does this relate to the things that we know Paul has told us in other places? Remember Paul talked about the struggle he had between his spirit and his flesh? He said, from the inside, I want to do the right thing. But my outside doesn't always want to. That's the struggle of the Christian life, isn't it? There's the conflict between my spirit and my flesh. Not between the Holy Spirit and flesh. The Holy Spirit doesn't have flesh. There's no conflict between God and flesh. The conflict is between your spirit and your flesh. And that's what Paul talks about as being the key to putting your flesh under. 
It's the key to growing in spirit, growing in the knowledge of God, so that you're able to walk in victory over the desires of your flesh. In other words, to live out of your spirit that wants to do right, that's been made righteous in the sight of God, instead of the things that your body wants to do. So it says, Jesus, being a merciful and faithful high priest, tempted in all points as we are, he understands. Okay, but here was my problem with this. I still couldn't get over it. It was like there was one final rock or jump that I had to leap over. And I could not understand how could Jesus, being sinless, relate to the stuff and the guilt and all the other kind of things that I felt when I have done wrong and knew that I made the choice to do it. See, folks, for me, the condemnation of sin has never been you did the wrong thing. The condemnation has been you chose to do it. How do you answer that? I mean, when the devil comes and says, well, you told a lie. Well, okay, I'm made of dust. God knows my frame is dust. But when he comes back with, yeah, but you knew what you were doing and you chose it. That's one I've never been able to dodge from. What do you do about that? Folks, the Bible says Jesus can relate to you in that. How? How in the world can he relate to when I chose to do wrong and he chose to do right? How is he going to be able to relate to that? Very simply this. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? You remember Jesus sweat great drops of blood? He said to his disciples, My soul is sorrowful even unto death. Why? Because the burden of sin, the burden of wrongdoing was being placed upon Jesus. I believe we, could be, we were, uh, would be correct in saying it this way. Jesus was being made sin. I don't think Jesus was just made sin on the cross. I think Jesus began the process of being made sin in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that burden that came upon him, the weight of that sin, that's why Jesus is able to relate to you because he knows what the weight of sin is. For you, it might have been your own wrongdoing. For him, it was the weight of the sin of mankind. But it's still the same thing. And the Bible says that the whole reason Jesus came in flesh and blood is so that he could, he could feel the weight, the burden of man's sin so that then he could take it away so that he could relate to you when you feel the burden of sin. Now, the Bible says he could have done it another way. He didn't have to. But this is the only way that he could have related to you. This is the only way that he could have aided or relieved you when you and I feel the burden of our own wrongdoing. Do you see what he's saying? What does this mean for us then? Notice in chapter 3. Wherefore, holy brethren. In other words, because of this, holy brethren. So he's got to be writing to Christians. He's writing to Christian Jews. Wherefore, holy brethren. You wouldn't call sinners brethren, would you? Sure wouldn't call them holy. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, got to be saved, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus, or Christ, Jesus. I want you to notice, did you, did you notice we recognized several times where it talked about the priest's 
uh, operates in things pertaining to God. The priest operates in several things pertaining to God. Not things pertaining to men, but things pertaining to God. How is Jesus our high priest? Well, we know the Bible's already told us what the high priest does. It offers gifts and sacrifices. Things pertaining to gifts and sacrifices and things pertaining to sins. Paul said so. It says that's the work of the high priest. Then what does Jesus do for you to God? It says he's the high priest of your profession. It's the same word translated confession in other places in the scripture. In other words, the only thing that Jesus has to offer to God on your behalf are the words that you speak. Are the words that you speak. Now, let's relate that to to real life. When you mess up, when you make a mistake, when you fall into sin, you do the wrong thing, what's the first thing that takes place? We feel guilty. And that guilt keeps us away from God. Depending on where, of what a person's stage of spiritual growth is, the younger they are in the things of God, then they back away completely, hoping to feel better so that then they can go back later. And after a period of several days, they'll forget it or it'll get better or whatever, and then they'll start praying again. But what about those several days of lost fellowship? Can I ask you a question? How would that work with a husband and wife? Well, I did the wrong thing, so I'm going to leave for a few days. My wife might like that. I don't know. But nevertheless, it's not really going to build a fellowship together, is it? Then she messes up and she leaves for several days. Then we come back. What do you wind up doing? You wind up being two people living in the same house, but you don't, you don't have anything together. Right? Is that the way that God, you think God intends for your spiritual life to be? Is that the abundant life Jesus came to bring us? Well, then why does the church live like that? Certainly not. Of course not. That's not the way that God wants it to be. It's not the way that Christians want it to be. Well, then why do Christians live like that? Because we don't know what to do about that feeling, that sense, that awareness of guilt and condemnation. And that awareness, that sense, that feeling of unworthiness and condemnation is the thing that causes people to say, well, okay, I know the Bible says Jesus was made sin for us so that we might be made righteous, but that's not right for me. It's not true for me. I guess I'll have to keep growing to get to that point. Why are you going to keep growing to get to that point if you leave God every few days when you do something wrong? I mean, can you find a scripture anywhere that says, and the key to spiritual growth is leave every few days when you mess up? Of course not. That's not going to work. So what do we do? What you do is very simply this. Folks, we make our profession in line with what the Word says. I, I, I didn't intend to go this far, but let me, let me take you to a couple other scriptures. I want you to notice with me over in... Um, uh, turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to read to you verses 11 and 12 and then skip over and read a couple of verses later on in the chapter. It says, But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, he's making the contrast between the temple, the Old Testament building of God, and the building of God that he chose, which was Jesus' flesh. He's making the contrast between the bulls and goats of the Old Testament sacrifice, Day of Atonement and so forth, as opposed to Jesus' blood. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once 
into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Paul goes to great detail and great lengths to, to remind them, you know how the, the priest had to go in year after year after year with the blood of animals. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. But it would only cover for one year. That's the way the ritual law, the practice of the law operated. Not so with Jesus. He obtained an eternal redemption by taking his precious blood in one time. Now, why did that work? Look with me over to chapter, I mean, uh, verse 24. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true. Get that phrase, which are the figures of the true. That means everything about the Old Testament temple, the, everything about the Old Testament law, had a corresponding truth that was fulfilled by Jesus through His death, burial, and resurrection. In other words, the whole reason for the law, the whole reason for the ritual sacrifices was to show us the pattern of what Jesus would do. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but unto heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now please notice the word sin is singular. To put away sin. Now, folks, don't, don't misunderstand me. The Bible says Jesus bore the sins of many. He's talking about he bore everybody's sins. But the Bible says specifically that Jesus offered his blood to do something about sin. Now, Jesus died on the cross before you were ever born. So there's got to be something more than Jesus just dying for the sins of those that had committed sins. If Jesus just paid the price for sins that were committed, that wouldn't stop anybody from sinning. Because the same problem, the same sin nature in mankind would be there that would cause us to sin again and again and again. Therefore, we would need Him to go in every other time we sin to offer more blood or to provide some kind of sacrifice so that we could stay in God's fellowship. But that's not the way it works. You've got some people in the body of Christ, they think that every time you make a mistake, every time you sin, you lose your salvation. So you're getting, you're, you're, you get born again, you sin, you get born again again, and then you sin again, and then you're born again again. And uh, How? Does Jesus go back to the cross? It's impossible. You can't be born again but once. You can't lose your salvation through sin, with one exception, and Hebrews tells us about that in chapter 6. There's only one exception to that. Otherwise... The man that is born again, the man that comes into Christ because Jesus puts away sin, when he makes a mistake, the Bible says that we have 1 John 1, 9 to confess our sins and God is faithful and just to forgive us of those unrighteous actions. But you never lose, you never break separation or break that relationship with God. There's no separation of, fellow, or there's no separation of relationship. There is broken fellowship. But you stay in the same relationship. Just like if a husband and wife get in a fight and they say unkind things to each other, doesn't mean they're not married anymore. It just means they said unkind things to each other. And so what do they do? They're going to have to come and say to one another, I'm sorry, or whatever the case is. <laughs> Leave for a few days, whatever their pattern is, I don't know. <laughs> they're going to have to do something to restore that fellowship. But the relationship's still there. Your sins don't break your relationship with God. 
They break your fellowship with God. They cause this sense of condemnation, this sense of unworthiness. But please notice that Jesus did not just take away sins. He put away sin. That means he, did, he dealt once and for all with the original cause of sin. What is that? Same thing that God told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The day you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. In other words, when Jesus is putting away sin, it means he's dealing once and for all with spiritual death. He's dealing once and for all with spiritual death. See, folks, you're not going to be, you're not going to enter into eternal life when you get to heaven. You've got it now. To whatever degree you choose to act on the word, you'll walk in eternal life now. But Jesus came to bring you abundant life now, as soon as you make Jesus the Lord of your life. Not at some point in time in the future, not when you grow to a certain point. You've got eternal life now. You're not going to have some different life when Jesus appears for the church and takes us to heaven. You're going to have the same life then that you've got now. There's a lot of people, when they get to heaven, their eyes are going to be open. They're going to say, you mean I could have done all this when I was on the earth? You mean I could have walked in this when I was on the earth? I was waiting for something more. And Jesus is going to say, why? I told you. I told you I came to bring it to you now. See, folks, there's not a different kind of life that you're going to have in heaven. That's why when Paul says when he was caught up into heaven, he didn't know whether he was in the body or not. It seemed to him like he's just him. So what did he do? He put away sin. He put away sin. Once and for all, he dealt with the sin nature of man. If you've got the idea, and particularly if you are saying that I'm just a subject to the old sin nature in my flesh, you're saying I'm still captive to spiritual death. Now, it's another thing to say my, my flesh is used to sinning, and I need to break that. That's a different thing. But if you're saying, as so much of the church world does, that, yeah, okay, Jesus paid the price for our sins, he provided for forgiveness of sins, but... We've still got the old sin nature. I don't. Jesus put away sin. He dealt with the sin nature. Once and for all. He dealt with it. So therefore, what does Jesus provide to God on our behalf? Our confession. Because the eternal law that God established with His people back in Numbers chapter 14 is I will deal with you according to the words that I hear in my ears. I will deal with you according to the words that you speak. Your confession governs your life. It governs whether or not you're worthy. It governs whether or not you're in fellowship with God. It governs your health, because Jesus died on the cross, and by his stripes you were healed. It governs your provision, because the chastisement of your peace was upon him too. It governs the degree of the righteousness of God that you walk in. It's already yours. But there are so, so, so many people in the church world that have been made righteous that are not walking in even a fraction, even the most minute part of the righteousness that they've been made. Why? Because all Jesus has to offer to God on your behalf is what you say. You want things to be different? Change what you're saying. You want to have more in life than what you have? Find the scripture that promises it to you and start saying it. You want to walk in health instead of sickness? Take healing scriptures and start saying them.
Why? Because Jesus is your merciful and faithful high priest. He knows the burden of sin. He knows what being tempted in all points like we are. Think about what that means. That means he had to be tempted with sickness. You ever been tempted to take sickness? That means Jesus woke up some days and didn't feel good too. If he was tempted in all points like you are. That means there were times where Jesus was faced with what it looked like wasn't going to be enough. Or else he couldn't have been tempted in all points like we were. That means everything you've ever faced, everything that you've ever been tempted to worry about and think, oh my goodness, what are we going to do now? Jesus faced in some way or another and God was always there for him and Jesus is always there for you. Now here's the, here's the capper for it for this morning. And, and forgive me, I haven't even scratched the surface on some of the things I want to say. I can tell this is going to be another 32-week series. <laughs> but here's the question I've got for you and here's what I want you to consider. What does it matter to God that Jesus be merciful and faithful as a high priest? Do you understand what I'm asking you? Why would it matter to God that Jesus be merciful and faithful as a high priest? It matters to me that he's merciful. <laughs> Dear Lord, I need mercy. It makes a lot of difference to me that he's merciful. I really, really want Jesus to be merciful. Because I know there are times where I'm going to mess up. So I really, really, really want him to be merciful. Why would God want him to be merciful? Because God wants to help you more than you want to be helped. I, I saw Brother Hagin deal with somebody that came to healing school back in, um, well, it must have been 1981, something like that. There was a lady that came to healing school, and man, she was, on, she was at just at death's door. They brought her in in, in a stretcher, and she had, was laying there, and, and there for week after week after week. And Brother Hagin would, uh, generally, he would go and he would minister to somebody maybe on a Thursday or Friday on, at the end, toward the end of the week, but he wouldn't lay hands on people every day. He'd take most of the week, and he'd just teach them, try to put the word into them. Well, the first time I saw him minister to her, it was, it was really unusual because uh, 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 he, um, he said certain things to her and, uh, and then he took off the microphone. I wasn't standing close enough to, to hear what was going on, but he took off the microphone so nobody would hear and he kind of bent down and he talked to her. And, and, uh, and before he put the microphone back up on his, you had a lapel mic like I do here. Before he put the microphone back on, I did hear him say this. He said, oh, dear sister, he said, God wants to heal you more than you want to be healed. Well, that didn't have any impact on her whatsoever. And, and the longer she stayed, week after week, and she was there for a long time. The, the lo longer she was there, the more you could see that it was kind of like, this is my last chance. The doctors have given up on me. If I don't get help here, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I noticed that Brother Hagen, every time he'd lay hands on her, he'd lay hands on her, and he'd say the same thing to her. Say, Sister, Jesus wants you to be well more than you want to be well. And go on. And some people, there were even some people that were saying, why isn't he spending more time with this woman? I mean, can't he see? She could die today. But every time he'd lay hands on people, maybe once, maybe twice a week, whatever, every time he'd lay hands on her and he'd say the same thing. He'd say, dear sister, Jesus wants you to be well more than you want to be well. Well, after a number of weeks, it took. And she completely changed. It dawned on her. She came in, and, and she was still laying on the stretcher, but then the next day she was sitting up in the chair, and then she started getting better and started getting better. Well, Brother Hagen took notice of it. And he asked her, he said, Sister, you, I've never seen you sitting up. I didn't know you could sit up. What happened to you? She said, Brother Hagen, it dawned on me. Jesus wants me well more than I want to be well. 
She said, I know how much I want to be well. And that was the thing that did it for her. It opened the door to the mercy of God for her. That's the whole point here, folks. That's what Paul's trying to say. That's what Paul's trying to get across to us. That was the beginning for that woman to be healed. She left that place completely well. Because it dawned on her that God wanted it for her more than she wanted it for herself. That's the only reason that the Bible identifies for Jesus to be a merciful high priest. Because God, whatever it is that you're facing, God wants victory for you more than you want it for yourself. That may take a while for you, that to sink in on you just like it did the woman that was on the stretcher. But when that dawns on you, when that comes to the realization, when the truth of that becomes real, and you come to, to realize, wait a minute, that's the whole reason why Jesus is a high priest. That's the whole reason why Jesus came in the flesh, so that he could relate to me, so that he could be merciful to me in the situation I'm in. Even if I'm the one that's the cause of my own situation, he still wants me out of this. He still wants to help me. He still wants to provide for me. When that begins to dawn on you, then it's you and him working together, not you trying to get something from him. And folks, that's everything. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man will do unto me. I don't think much of the church knows God's on, his, on their side. But you should. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. The Bible says that he is the surety the surety of a new covenant. He's your guarantee. He's the one that signs saying, I'll be responsible. If they don't live up to it, I'll make good on them. He's the one that has guaranteed the blessings of God, the part of abundant life, the part of eternal life, for whatever part you need in your life, for whatever aspect or area you need. He's the one that says, I'll be the guarantee that it will be available for. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a merciful and faithful high priest. Faithful in that you can relate to our burden. You can relate to the adversity that we find ourselves in. And no wonder the Holy Spirit tells us to count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations, tests, trials, and afflictions. Because we've got you on our side. If the Lord be for us, who can be against us? Or we might say, since the Lord is for us, what does it matter who's against us? What does it matter if, he, if sickness is against us? What does it matter if poverty is against us? What does it matter if circumstances and problems of this life come against us? You're on our side. You are our merciful and faithful high priest. The high priest of our confession. Therefore, we declare... We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We declare, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. We declare, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man will do unto me. Oh, Father, thank you so much for your goodness and thank you for your mercy. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our faithful high priest. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your mercy endures forever, never fades out, never comes to an end. It endures forever. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Say it with me. The Lord is good. And His mercy endures forever. Amen. God bless you.